Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now, that's what's so interesting about these types of little girls is that their crushes then become as aggressive as their personalities. So did you <laughs> did you ever pursue any little boy as hardcore as Lucy? I was actually really shy around oh, boys cute. when I was growing up. Yeah, I didn't, I, I would never. Actually, you know what? You just brought back a really funny memory. When I was in first grade, I was kind of like the alpha of the of the playground. And <laughs> my friends would catch the boys so that I could hold them so I could kiss them. But then that was like oh. super young, like first grade. And then my stronger memories are like kind of going through middle school and high school. And that's where I was very shy around boys. Ooh, I am shook, Julie. And you're going to put this on the air now. I'm going to be very embarrassed. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we're talking about You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And I'm, I, I gotta be honest, I'm honored that you're my guest, Julie. Here to talk to me about it is the executive director of the Educational Theater Association. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Julie Cohen Theobald. Hi, Julie. Thank you, Jeff. Hi, it's so good to be here. This is great. Now, I know that you have kind of a personal relationship to this show because you've done it twice at two different points in your life, right? Yes, very different points in my life. Okay, so how old were you when the, you did the first time? The first time I was nine years old. I was in fourth grade. It was Hot my dang. very first musical. That's and, awesome. uh, you know, it was one of those, like, process of elimination. Like, I tried sports, and I wasn't good at that. And I tried <laughs> gymnastics, and I wasn't good at that. And I'm from Chicago, so everybody did ice skating, and I wasn't very good at that. So my mom signed me up for this class called Triple Threat 
you know, singing, dancing, oh my and gosh. acting. Yes. And this was like the kind of the showcase performance from the class. And How at cute. that point, I was Snoopy. Yes! <laughs> Showstopper, I'm sure. Yeah, the, the supper time song was definitely, you know, the 11 o'clock number at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did the show again when I was in my late 20s and I got to play Lucy, which is actually the part that I've always wanted to play because it definitely reminded um, me of myself as a child. You know, I was a little Taipei. bossy and now, you know, now I'm a leader and that's because <laughs> I had those qualities as a child, but definitely related to Lucy. I love that Lucy's the alpha of this gang. Totally. Yes, she is in charge. <laughs> it's interesting that you said that you tried everything and like nothing was sticking. That is 100% my story. <laughs> what happened to you? We tried t-ball. I mean, like, God bless my parents. We tried t-ball. We tried soccer. We tried karate, which lasted like one class because the sensei terrified me. <laughs> and then I got involved in clogging because I'm from Utah. So like, Rocky Mountain, country western clogging. That's kind of like tap dancing. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's I actually like, did a clogging number once in like a high school variety show. There are two musicals where like there's usually clogging and it's Annie Get Your Gun and Seven Brights for Seven Brothers. And so it's like tap, but there are two taps kind of loosely connected by screws on your um, on your shoes. So they jingle instead of just doing like a solid tap. So I started as a competitive clogger. <laughs> And then eventually found my way into musical theater from there. But it's interesting how little artists find their way. Yeah, I mean, you have to find your thing. And for kids, you know, who may not be good at sports or, you know, academics, although I was good at academics too. But, you know, if they don't have theater as an option or they don't even know about it, like some of these kids, like in these rural areas, they may not even like have a professional theater in their city sure the way they often discover is in school and then when they do and they you know catch the bug and the light bulb moment and all that and then you know it just becomes their thing and they have the confidence and get more and more involved like we did so that's why it's so important that like that initial access point is there for everybody agreed I'm incredibly passionate about this art form as a filter through which we begin to understand and relate to the world, not just for enjoyment and for razzmatazz, which absolutely is there. It's part of it. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of sequence. So like, don't get me wrong. But the emotional and cultural impact of musical theater is much greater than I think we ever have conversations about. And when we introduce it early to children, the amount of history and even just kind of social awareness that begins to seep in like a sponge is incredible. I think that even more so than the skills of singing, dancing, acting, those empathetic skills are the most valuable thing we could give our children. So you could be my speech maker from now on, because <laughs> that's what we talk about all the time, you know, a small percentage of people go on to Broadway, but what's yeah. really important is just who you become as a person and all those life skills, you know, think about how many adults are like terrified to speak in public Absolutely. or just the adaptability of getting thrown in lots of different situations. Every show you do is a new situation. It's a new team. It's a new theme. It's a new environment, you know, and you do that over and over and over again, and you can kind of get dropped in anywhere and, you know, figure things out. So yeah. It gives Absolutely. great personal qualities. And when you talk about just the social and cultural awareness, you know, I just think about theater as stories and there's lots of ways to 
tell stories or take in stories. But what I love about a musical, especially a really good, well-produced musical, is, you know, you're on the edge of your seat the whole time and the Mm. songs give you goosebumps and chills and you laugh and like you're so into it that then like all those messages and themes and stories comes and affects you in a different way than if you just, you know, read an article or... Um, heard about it in a different way. You're you're totally right. It's an all sensory experience. Experience, yes. The other thing that I love about musical theater is that the source material can really come from anywhere. I mean, we have musicals based on books. We have musicals based on plays. We have musicals based really just on nothing other than history and imagination. And then we also have musicals based on comic strips. We're talking about one today, which is Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, based on the Peanuts comic strip. But of course, Annie came from a comic strip. Lil Abner also came from a comic strip. And what I don't think I realized is that the heyday of comic strips is actually very much an American art form in the same way that musical theater in its golden age was and is kind of an, an American art form. So it's kind of cool that there's some crossover here. Yeah, I never thought about that, about comic strips being really an American thing. But that that's really interesting. I think there have always been political cartoons and that sort of thing. But the idea of tuning in every week. A series. To see what, yeah, exactly. To see what's going on with your favorite characters. And one of the most popular of all time was the Peanuts comic strip, which was created by Charles M. Schultz. Now, I watched this interview with Mr. Schultz. And he says that he only goes by Sparky. If you know him, you refer to him as Sparky. So unfortunately, he has since passed. But in honor of that, I think we should refer to him as Sparky from here on out. So Sparky, a talented cartoonist, his illustrations were famously rejected from his high school yearbook. Love that. (laughs) Which is fantastic. He served in World War II, and then when he came back, he started working on a series of kind of one-panel jokes, and it was called Lil' Folks. And Lil' Folks is where Charlie Brown was born. He has this really amazing art style that's, when you think about it, very minimalistic. A lot of the characters are bald or have like two hairs on their head. Very simple. (laughs) Right? And they have these triangle bodies, and yet there's something so... Like iconic. Yeah, iconic. You're exactly right about the style. He tried and tried and tried to get little folks sold into the newspapers and nobody was buying. And then he decided to, instead of doing the one panel thing, start splitting it up into a more story, uh, a more story like strip. And he called it the Peanuts Gang. And boom, it got picked up. Now, in its heyday, Peanuts was published in... 2,600 papers in 75 countries in 21 languages. Crazy. Wow. And he did every single strip. That's what I I don't think people realize. I just read that. Like, he maybe took one vacation in his life or something where he took off a couple days and they did a For his 75th birthday. He was like, I guess I'll take a vacation. 75th. (laughs) Insane. Yeah, Yeah, no reruns for the Peanuts gang. (laughs) Which means that he drew 17,897 strips in his lifetime. Wow. That's prolific. Seriously, his daughter, I guess, called him obsessed. And he's like, yeah, that's that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Enter this composer named Clark Gessner. And he decided that he wanted to write an album of music 
based on these characters. So inspired by these characters. And all he was really planning to do was create an album. So he wrote the songs and was trying to go through all of the right corridors of seeing if the Peanuts world would be interested in adopting his music and taking it on. And he couldn't get seen or heard. And so then finally, he just recorded the songs and sent them to Sparky himself and said, take a listen to this. Let me know what you think. Sparky loves it and gives his blessing for the album. So he records the album. Then a theatrical producer hears the album and says, hey, have you thought about turning this into a musical, into a live experience? He's like, not really, but okay. So they do. (laughs) And it turns out to be this off-Broadway show. Now, if you look at the actual poster or even script, it says that Your Good Man Charlie Brown is, you know, music and lyrics by Clark Esner and then book by John Gordon. Now, it turns out John Gordon doesn't exist. John Gordon is like a pseudonym for the entire staff and cast of the show because everybody helped to create the flow and and all of the different vignettes that make up this show. So it's almost like a devised piece based on the comic strip. Yeah, exactly. They just kind of combed through all of them and were like, okay, maybe we can put this joke in here, this joke in there, and just kind of sculpted something based on all of this reference material that they had to work from. That's amazing. It premieres off-Broadway in New York in 1967, And it runs for 1,500 performances. So uh, that's four years, which is pretty pretty incredible. It has many national tours. When did you first see it? I mean, so you did it when you were nine. But, like, were you a fan of the Peanuts? Had you seen them? I I mean, I definitely saw them, and we would get the newspaper at home. And then I... I have memories from childhood from, you know, the Great Pumpkin, Charlie oh, Brown, course, Charlie Brown course. Christmas and Valentine. You'd be my Valentine, Charlie Brown. Definitely Isn't that have the memories best? of those. And you would watch them every year. They were so smart to capitalize on holidays. They immediately became a tradition. I always loved the Thanksgiving one when Snoopy. <laughs> I was when just Snoopy... about the Thanksgiving one because that's coming up. Right. And he would like make popcorn. I don't know why. <laughs> I just I always remembered that one. And the ice skating, you said you, in Chicago, they were big ice skaters. And there was like that whole ice skating special. I also had a Snoopy stuffed animal growing up. Now that I'm remembering, I had this like, I had this Snoopy stuffed animal that I got at Water Tower Place, like, and it was like a special shopping trip downtown. And they would have all these clothes that you could like buy for the Snoopy. And I would like change its clothes from like pajamas to like a little engineer outfit to like a little cowboy outfit with overalls and... That's fantastic. We probably spent a lot of money on the clothes for that stuffed animal. I get it. I had a talking Mickey Mouse with the same. I actually still have him. And I'm kind of terrified to see if he still works because like his eyes would blink. And you know, those things can get creepy if they're not looking well. (laughs) They're stuck. Right. (laughs) So obviously, Peanuts has a huge cultural footprint in our lives. How did you come about doing it later in your life in terms of the musical? Well, I've always wanted to be Lucy. And yes. uh, so I do community theater. Uh, I did I did theater in college. I did summer stock. And I still do community theater when I can fit it in now. So Aww, the thing I with community that. theater is, you know, it's a short-term commitment. So I would kind of just like scope it out, you know, look at what shows the different theaters are doing, who's directing it, one of the auditions. And so when I saw Charlie Brown come up, I was like, I want to, I really want to be Lucy. I was in my late <laughs> 20s. So yes. it was this like really small community theater. It was at 
actually, I remember the rehearsals were above a shoe factory and it was called like the old shoe factory theater. And it was That's freezing. Adorable. Like they didn't have heat working in the winter. And it was, I mean, it was like a okay, total. Not that adorable. I oh always my gosh. say that like community theater, there's like a continuum and some have a little more theater and some have a little more community. <laughs> and this one was definitely on the community side of the spectrum. But I thought, you know, you only need six people in the show. And if you get six people, it can be a great show and be a lot of fun. Absolutely. So a few friends of mine came out with me and uh so we were like half the cast and so it was cute. a blast it was a blast i just love the material i love the character i love the songs it's incredibly smart and because it was created in this kind of avant-garde off-broadway space it works really well in community theaters and smaller theaters if anything i think the show struggles to fill a big theater, you know, yeah, which I can so, see that. so many of our professional regional houses are probably too big for your good man, Charlie Brown. That being said, the first time I saw it was the New York revival in the 90s. Oh, on Broadway? Yeah. They have this huge revival with an all-star cast. Yeah, you saw that with Kristen Chenoweth? Yes, and I saw it right after Kristen Chenoweth and Roger Bart had both won their Tony Awards. And the the whole show begins, and we'll talk about this, with like the different vignettes and different characters. And so like a special would come up when each character would, would be introduced. And people went but insane. Nuts. I can see that. That was like, her like breakout role, wasn't it? Right, absolutely. She had been working for a little bit. She had done Still Peer and a couple of other shows, but it, she's this four eleven dynamo in this like silly pink cartoony dress and this like curly wig, and she and the lights come up and the audience just starts applauding. I'm like, where am? Am I at a rock concert? <laughs> no, I'm at You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. And the same thing for Roger Bart. Same thing for Anthony Rapp. But yeah, so it's interesting that even though. This musical, I think, works best on a small scale. My first introduction, and I think the future of it is kind of dependent on this really large Broadway-scale version of the show in the 90s. Why do you think the future of the show is dependent on that? Uh, because it was reinfused with this energy. A couple of new songs were written by Andrew right. Lippa mm -hmm. uh, that have really been beloved by the musical theater community. And it just kind of re-energized an older property, for, for better or worse, into being produced even more than maybe it, it had been. Yeah, that's true. Makes sense. I did the show in a huge theater, in like a huge 2,000-seat theater, and I loved doing it, but it's not like a 42nd Street where you're sending darts of energy out into this huge theater that can reach everybody. There's a lot of stillness. There's a lot of like wah, wah, wah type humor. And so you you also don't get any energy back as as performers. Unless, of course, you're Kirsten Chenoweth and you just want a Tony. And then I guess you get all of the energy. <laughs> but I had the exact opposite in that Shoe Factory Community Theater show because we had kids even sitting on the floor in front. See, and that's amazing. And then the kids like, were right there. And, you know, with kids, you get so much feedback right away. <laughs> And then afterward, we, we, you know, I don't usually like to come out in costume after a show, but we came out as our characters so the kids could like see us and stuff like that. Oh, so that was so, a lot of fun. That's so sweet. I remember in college, I did this little touring thing to some of the elementary schools and it was meant to be kind of a winter theme. And so I was playing Jack Frost and I had a puppet and like we were the villains trying to take over and... 
And I had a lot of exposition, which apparently one of the kindergartners thought was incredibly boring. And <laughs> uh, I honestly can't remember if it was a little boy or a little girl. But they stood up and said, you don't know what acting is. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you will never forget that moment. <laughs> never. And I'm usually pretty good at, like, tossing it right back. I was stoned. Shot dead shocked like like i had nothing i had nothing kids are amazing <laughs> do you have kids i do i have a 16 year old girl and a 13 year old boy that's so great are, are they into the arts at all they are they are very lucky they both have a great theater program at school and um have done some community theater shows you know they really grew up around it like sure. you know they'd be sitting in the theater when i was at rehearsal or i had some shows when they were really young where i did like musical rehearsals in my living room so that i could <laughs> put the kids to bed and stuff like that so That's yeah fantastic. they both really like it and do you think they're going to like try and go into it and how do you feel about that it's interesting. I was just talking to my mom about this because, you know, I was very into theater and I went to Duke undergrad and she was always like, just make sure you have options. <laughs> and so when I was in college, I did the musicals were part of a student run group called Hoof and Horn, which was a blast because it was all student directed. And so I did like a lot of classes in the drama department, but I wasn't a drama major. So I kind of had the best of both worlds and I had different options when I graduated. And my daughter, who's now 16 and starting to look at colleges, she's gone from, she doesn't want to go to college, it's straight to Hollywood, she's going to be a movie star, to now she's saying, you know, she wanted to go into theater, but go to a college program where she could get a bachelor's degree. And now she's saying she's interested in TV and film and acting and fashion and business and marketing. So I'm like, okay, this is going on a good track, you know? And I always say, like, I talk to a lot of students with my job and I always say, you know, there'll always be a place for theater in your life. Go for it and also have options. <laughs> be a star, babe. You're awesome. Also, the MBA looks really, really great. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and you know what? Who knew a job like this existed when I was, you know, thinking about going to college? I never would have imagined that. Have you always been in like the nonprofit sector? No, I actually went into business. I have an MBA from University of Chicago. I went to um, Procter & Gamble after business school and I worked on Dang. big brands like Tide Detergent. And I worked on the initial launch of Febreze is kind of my claim to fame Whoa. back in 1998 uh, when Febreze first went into test market and into the into a national launch like I was on that team oh my gosh so that was that was pretty awesome and then I worked at Deloitte in consulting so I was doing the business track like I was enjoying it I was still doing theater on the side mm -hmm. but when I heard about my current job it was actually by accident I <gasps> I was looking on for my community theater auditions I'm on like a an open forum kind of where people post things and whenever we have job openings at my organization, we post them on this listserv because we want people who are passionate about theater. Of course. So they had hired, you know, a national search firm out of Seattle. And I never would have seen any of that because I wasn't looking for a job. I was fine. I was happy. And I saw this job opening because I was looking for auditions for community theater. <laughs> and I saw the headline, Educational Theater Association, looking for new executive director. And it caught my attention. So you never know where theater can lead you. Wow, that's crazy. And can you talk a little bit about the organization? Sure. So we've been around since 1929. It began Whoa, I don't as, I didn't know that. Yeah, we had our 90-year anniversary last year, but it began as the Thespian Society. Hmm. And the whole vision for it was in a school, there's lots of ways to recognize academics and athletics 
But there weren't a lot of great ways to give attention to the theater students and the arts. So our founders created this thing called the Thespian Society where people would earn points and then they would be inducted into this honor society for theater. And their whole vision was like, you know, you have the honor society and the points and all that. But you even when you go back and look at these documents from the 1920s, they wanted to have classes. They wanted theater to be recognized as a curricular subject. And they felt like by creating this national organization that would have like publications and conferences and competitions and share, you know, the knowledge that that would make it more important and that would lead to more resources and having it be part of every school. So now we're pretty big. We are in, um, we have memberships in about 6,000 schools, mostly high schools and middle schools. We've had over 2 million students be inducted into the Thespian Society. So yes. a lot of so it Broadway still people are, you know, we're thespians and we yes. still do that. And then um, we also have taken a bigger um, role in advocacy and making sure that theater is part of every school and that it's recognized as a curricular subject. That's amazing. It's about creating relationships, I assume, with different school districts and state governments and those sorts of things? Yes, that. And we also have festivals and conferences in states. And the International Thespian Festival is our biggest event. It's our signature event. And that's like a full week, 5,000 teenagers Before COVID, all coming to a college campus, having shows every night, workshops, Broadway people, colleges, kind of being the hub of the whole theater, school theater field. I love that. I wish I had had that. I'm not going to lie. Where did you grow up? Northern Utah, which is incredibly artistic for being like a farm town. Very choral centric. Uh Um, Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Hello. So our choir department was amazing, but they're the ones who put on the musical every year, not the drama department. And that has since changed. And I've gone back and worked with my high school because they have faculty that are incredibly passionate about theater and musical theater now. But yeah, growing up, it was it was more about choral and and then do do a musical every year. That's yeah, that's fairly typical. I actually did a lot of choir in high school, too. Yeah. Which I'm, it's, it's good to hear again, that your high school's um, grown and advanced in that. In the absolutely, theater. absolutely. Curriculum. I just worked with them on creating this review because they are they're back in school. They're obsessed with Jagged Little Pill, like every uh-huh. <laughs> like every high school. And so we created this review called "You Live, You Love, You Learn," which is based on that Alanis Morissette song "You Live." And the review had three sections. The first section was all about living. So there were songs from musical theater that were about, you know, living and going the distance and all that sort of thing. And then the second was about love. Mm. And then the third one was about learning. And Gross. it was really fun. That's yeah, a, that sounds both. like a nice arc yeah. of, a, of a review. It was really sweet. And it was absolutely insane because there were kids quarantined every week. Uh, mm. But they worked so hard. They rehearsed the entire time with masks on yep. and then performed without them. And in fact, I was in the back of the theater taking notes during the dress rehearsal and there were some people that I didn't recognize without their mask on and I had to like cover up their face with my finger to like, <laughs> to, like who is that so strange right like picture them with a mask on oh it's Emily okay I got it it's I actually so crazy. went to my daughter's show last weekend and they performed with masks on did they wow mm-hmm. wow 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 all right well let's go through the show a little bit like we said there isn't much of a a through line it was more pieced together from this incredibly huge catalog of Peanuts comic strips. And yet these characters are so well-defined. And I was going through the script and reading through it. And there are so many little nuggets 
I was like, ooh, I want to talk about that one. And then I'd get to the next page and be like, ooh, I want to talk about that one. The whole show is just filled with all of these great little moments that by the end of the show, I can't even remember <laughs> which yeah, ones I wanted to me, talk like, about. my favorite parts. And I was just thinking the whole show, there's, it's so funny. It's so insightful. I love every song. It's just what, <laughs> it's what makes it great. What we do at the very beginning is introduce these characters. We have Charlie Brown, who is, you know, our show is named after him. And how would you describe little, little old Charlie? <laughs> Poor Charlie Brown. That's how right, I would describe always. him. Everything always happens to Charlie Brown. And he's, you know, he's just kind of pure and kind and tries hard and just is in lots of unfortunate situations. <laughs> <laughs> He always has he's the best intentions. He's an empathetic he, character. He really is. And he like is he's very sensitive. He always has the best of intentions. And yet he's also I'm a big Brene Brown fan. Yeah, he's like me the too. king of foreboding joy, right? <laughs> Where he is he always knows the other boot is gonna drop and he's just waiting for it. And it always happens. And from what I gather, our friend Sparky is very much this way. He related Charlie, to that. Yeah, Charlie Brown is him in many ways. Charlie Brown has a little sister named Sally. Now, originally off-Broadway, this character was Patty, Peppermint Patty. But for the revival, they turned it into Sally, who was good old Charles' uh, little sister. She is very precocious, much more uh, matter-of-fact than her brother, I mm-hmm. would say. Mm-hmm. Then we have Charlie's friends. Lucy, who we've already talked about, is the alpha of the group. She's incredibly, I don't want to say bossy because that's not the right word. She's a leader. She's a leader, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But she has a lot of friends who care about her, which is really sweet. Mm -hmm. Her little brother is Linus, and he has his security blanket. Did any of your kids have, like, a thing? My my daughter had her blankie, and I yeah. also have a, I have a younger brother, so I also kind of related to the Lucy oh, boxing yeah. around her younger brother and <laughs> Linus looking up to her and just like you know wanting wanting to please and definitely related to the blankie. <laughs> That's so cute. Even though he's kind of the youngest and most insecure, he's also I would say the most wise. In the Christmas Charlie Brown special, he's the one who reminds everybody what the reason of the season is. He's grounded. (laughs) Yeah, grounded, exactly. Then you have Schroeder. And Schroeder is a musical prodigy, virtuoso. He's got his little piano. And Lucy is head over heels in love with him. Oh, and then Snoopy, of course. Yeah, Snoopy. So Snoopy is Charlie Brown's faithful dog. He is... 100% a dog and also 100% a human at the same time. (laughs) And he's probably one of the most iconic, maybe the most iconic character of of the entire gang. Yeah, I would say so. He's got some great moments in the show. The opening number is the title number, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, in which all of the kids are building him up. Because they all like him. I think that's really important in this show is that we hear from the get-go that everybody likes him. Otherwise, we would just feel horrible for him for the rest of the show. (laughs) But that is kind of the charm of this is that we don't think that everybody's mean to him. It just because of circumstance, he always gets crapped on. Mm -hmm. And that's where the humor comes from. Mm -hmm. 
After this great opening number, you have lots of vignettes, but one of the first things I wanted to talk about was Charlie Brown sitting at lunchtime and how he says that lunchtime is the worst time. He hates it because he feels like he's alone, and he's delivering this monologue. He opens up his lunch. He has a peanut butter sandwich, which he hates because the peanut butter gets stuck to the roof of his mouth, and he can't get it off. And so as an audience, we're just sitting watching Charlie Brown eat a peanut butter sandwich. And then he says, the PTA did really good at painting these benches. (laughs) He's an optimist, (laughs) looks for the good in things. (laughs) After all of this, he's got to give the compliment to the PTA. (laughs) I love that about him. I think that moment at lunch, like I got goosebumps when you're talking just because, you know, I was a camp counselor for many years. And I think like that. Just like the kids sitting alone at lunch is like the saddest thing. Right. It's true. One of the next big highlights is Lucian Schroeder. And what Clark Gessner, the composer, did, which is really smart, was that he took the Moonlight Sonata because Schroeder's obsessed with Beethoven. And Lucy's trying to have a conversation with him while he's playing. And so the musical line is kind of woven into this classical piece of music. And Lucy is like belting out this loud, obnoxious song. (laughs) Lucy could not be more different than a beautiful classical piece of music. Yeah, it's a great contrast. And in my car, I don't know why I can't figure out how to turn it off. But when my Bluetooth attaches, like connects to my phone and somebody calls me this weird Moonlight Sonata club track kicks in and it drives me crazy but the only saving grace is i usually sing lucy's part to it you know while it's playing shorter? exactly <laughs> you know something shorter <laughs> that's great <clears throat> let's talk about both of snoopy's numbers now because they're really really fun this first one is kind of introducing us to the the dog side of him he's Laying on his house, everything is fine, everything is great. It's a beautiful day, look at the sky. Until all of a sudden, maybe he wants to bite somebody. And then all of a sudden, he's a dog. And he wants to go here, and he wants to go there. But also, it's a beautiful day. And so it's always (laughs) this back and forth of trying to maybe get into the psychology of (laughs) why dogs... What it's like when a day is like for for a dog. (laughs) Exactly. And this whole, like, squirrel type thing. Then, of course, the other huge number of his is supper time, which, like you said, is the big 11 o'clock number. And another really fantastic moment to musicalize, which is, I don't know if you're a dog person. I do. I have a dog. Yeah. I've always had dogs. Always so excited to see you. (laughs) Always so thrilled that you're going to be feeding them. The sheer exuberance that comes from those little animals is so beautifully put into music in this show. That's a great point. My dog now, she's too small to get up the stairs um, because we have hardwood floors. And so it's like if I go upstairs for 15 minutes and come down the stairs, she's like greeting me like she hasn't seen me in three days. Has it (laughs) been two minutes? Has it been two days? I don't know. Yeah, that music really does that. Those numbers really do bring that to life. That's a great insight. I love dogs. My little dog is named Little Dude, and he is the sweetest little thing in the world. I'm so grateful for him. Okay, let's talk about Linus. So Linus has a song called My Blanket and Me, which, spoiler alert, is about him and his blanket. And it's this really sweet like thing that you don't see anymore. But in the 1960s, it was popular because it, it happens in Once Upon a Mattress as well, where 
there's like a dance number for a character, but it's not meant to be a super impressive dance number. I'm talking about the jester. Like a dance break. Yeah. 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 And and it's just something to give a little insight to the character, but it's more endearing than anything else. It's more endearing than impressive. It's more like an acting moment. Yes. Just to stop talking and and express in a different way. Yes. And I love that. I love using dance in lots of different ways. And this is a great example of that. The Doctor is in is this really great moment where Charlie Brown decides that he's going to go to Lucy, the psychiatrist. And so she's like set up this lemonade stand. But instead of it being, you know, like a a typical lemonade stand that kids would do, it's a it's a psychiatry office. And and so advice, five cents. right? Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so she gets him to like say all of the horrible things about himself. Like, come on, Charlie Brown, just get it out. Say every horrible thing about yourself. And he does. And she says, basically, yeah, you're totally right. And he's like, well, that's terrible. Like, I don't want to feel I don't want to feel horrible about myself. And she's like, yeah, but that's what makes you you. And he's like, (laughs) oh, I get it. (laughs) And she's like, five cents, please. Thank you very much. (laughs) Now, when you have like nine year olds performing this stuff, there's no way that they know what they're doing. Right. They get what they're doing, but at the same time, they don't understand it from yeah, the Yeah, I remember standpoint. like the Red Baron monologue, and the biggest thing was, wow, that's a lot of lines to memorize. <laughs> Isn't that so funny? I remember counting how many lines I used to have. Uh-huh. Like that was really important to me to know how many lines I had in the first act and how many ni- lines I had in the second act. And now as an adult, I feel like it's the opposite. I'm like, I don't have to come on until scene three. <laughs> Let's talk about my favorite number, which is Peter Rabbit. I was going to say that is my favorite song, too. The really? book report. Oh, it's so funny. The whole idea is that there's this book report that all of these kids have to write for school. And it's on the children's book, Peter Rabbit. But throughout the number, we see so much of who they are by how they're choosing to write their book report. So you've got Lucy, who's only interested in how many words it has to be. <laughs> exactly. And she's like counting them down. Peter Rabbit was a super book about a super rabbit who made vegetables from other, other people's, people's garden. <laughs> and then she lists all the vegetables. <laughs> exactly. Because it takes up more words. I'm probably more of a Linus where I was like going way too deep in examining a work such as Peter Rabbit. Then you've got Charlie Brown who has so much anxiety he can't even start. Right? He'll start tomorrow. He'll start tomorrow. He'll start right. tomorrow. <laughs> He's like, if I start doing it now, then maybe, but I uh, but I don't want to. And so then he doesn't. And then I can't remember what Sally does. Do you, do you remember? I remember from the original because I did the original oh, twice. Oh, so you remember Patty. Who's the one? Is there, isn't there one like that hasn't read the book? And it's like the name of the book about which this yes. book report is about is. Yes, that's, <laughs> like I think that is Schroeder. How do you fill all the words? How do you fill this book report with words when you actually have no idea what the book is about? <laughs> That's exactly right. You're, I totally forgot about that. So Schro- Schroeder begins. And then just, he just makes stuff up, I think. Right. Yes. And then that's how he gets into the drama of it all is because it becomes very obvious that he has no idea <laughs> what's actually going on. Oh, my gosh. I totally forgot about that. I love also just like musically how everybody's doing a different thing. And then it kind of all fuses together on top of each other at the same time. It's, exactly. It's... So when, once we hear everybody's perspective then they all oh i remember so sally and snoopy are hunting rabbits Mm. 
there's this whole section where they're going on this great hunt. And then once we've been introduced to all of them, then musically, like you said, they all combine to this really epic sounding opus. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> is, it, is it a fugue? Is that the musical term for it? <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Yeah, like few for Tin Horns from Guys and Dolls. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or even Counterpoint. Like th- this might as well be tonight. The quintet from it actually they're both the end of the uh, the first act right before intermission. (laughs) Right, that's true. Okay, so let's talk about some of the added songs for the revival that have become so popular. One is for Sally, and one is for Schroeder, the two characters that probably had the least to do. Mm -hmm. Sally got a new song called "My New Philosophy." in which she's constantly learning new ways to tell people no, (laughs) essentially, and to make her opinions known. And and all she wants to be is heard, right? But it's a really sweet and fun song. And then Schroeder got a new song called Beethoven Day, which is celebrating his great composer. And it ended up being kind of a gospel-themed number. And actually made room for more diversity within the cast because I think traditionally the cast was white and the comic strip was very white. Diversity in musical theater and in casting has become at the forefront of conversations, especially here on the podcast. And I think one of the big opportunities that we have is to introduce the arts and musical theater to diverse groups of children to ensure that the future is as colorful and diverse as it can be. How does that play into your work and what you've learned through your organization? It's a big priority for us. And um, yes, I feel like we provide that pipeline that's going to change things in the industry. And a lot of times, you know, like we talked about, you find your thing when you're Mm -hmm. maybe in late elementary school or middle school. So that's where we need to make sure that theater is something that's uh, relevant and for everyone. We know that the theater teachers right now primarily are white. It's like 93%. And it's hard when there aren't role models. Um, Mm. So we're we're working on programs to bring in artists of color into schools to work with students and to be role models. Um, We're also looking at, you know, I think a lot of teachers maybe are in a diverse school, but are not attracting the diversity of the school into the theater program. And then some are doing a great job of that. So trying to figure out why and what it is that those teachers are doing. Um, A lot of it has to do with material, um, making sure that there's material that is telling the stories of lots of different communities. Um, And if that material is not there, encouraging more playwrights and even students devising their own work to tell their own stories. Mm. I think as a national organization that sets examples, we have a responsibility to make sure that we're putting things on our stage. Like we have the main stage at the International Thespian Festival, which is like the pinnacle of high school theater. We need to make sure that the stories and the schools and the people on that stage are representing all students. And, you know, that's what's going to encourage younger kids to say, you know, when they go and they sit on the floor and they watch that show that, you know, you talked about your Jack Frost show, they look up (laughs) and they say, I want to do that. Yeah, that's kind of where I can do it better than like, yeah, I I can do that. (laughs) So we need to make sure that that we're role modeling. That's so so we do have a lot of initiatives right now. Uh, I just talked to a school the other day uh, in Pennsylvania where they were talking about a partnership with the Black Student Alliance to work on this devised piece of theater and get kids involved. So it's got to come from everywhere, but it's very important. That's really great. I've had several teachers reach out to me and ask, for example, I really want to do West Side Story. 
I don't have enough Latinx students in my program. Would it be okay to cast white kids as sharks? You know, that sort of thing. And what would you say? What would you tell them? It's interesting. There is not a clear point of view in the school theater community on that. Um, I feel like one of the best things about theater is you talked earlier about empathy and walking in someone else's shoes. And what a better way to learn empathy uh, and build relationships than walking in someone's shoes who's different from you. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, we have a great opportunity in an educational setting to let people walk in those shoes. And there, I mean, for example, Lin-Manuel Miranda is saying in his script, it's okay for a school to do in the Heights, you know, even if they don't have a cast. um, I didn't know that. Latinx. However, I have also heard from teachers and students. I had students write me letters when they saw a show on our main stage of in the Heights, um, where there were white kids playing those roles. And for them, it was very personal and they felt like it was wrong and they, um, that white kids should not be playing, especially if the role is about like it's central to the character, Mm -hmm. um, that, you know, racial identity or ethnicity. So, you know, it's, people have different opinions about it. I think it's, I think it's important for us to walk in other people's shoes and, um, it may depend on the role and the play and the playwright's intention, but I, I would err on the side, especially in educational theater of opening it up and, telling more stories and letting more kids play those kinds of roles. You talked about like teaming up with different alliances within the schools or different clubs. Has that proved profitable from from your experience? Actually, I was going to I was just thinking of another example of that which was a school that did hairspray in New Jersey uh-huh. where they didn't have the cast. It was a mostly white school or mostly white theater program, which is they, one oh, where you would have to have right, the color it, because it's part of the Well, I'll tell you something about that in a second on hairspray, but they oh, they it. opened it up and they let other schools audition and partnered with other schools and then oh. those kids got a kind of experience where they were working with students from multiple schools and it was like this, you know, really cool kind of community building experience. So that was a a great example. But I saw a production of Hairspray at an all black school. And what they did is they used wigs, they used headpieces. And so the kids that were playing the black kids were not wearing wigs. And the ones playing the um, other gang were wearing like pink and yellow and light green. And it was, it actually worked really well. Like it was very clear from a storytelling standpoint. Uh And it was a awesome production and the teacher the director did a great job um i can send you some pictures it was really love to see that it really worked by using those wigs and they weren't like blonde or brunette wigs they were actually like colors um so it kind of took it out of reality a little bit and it really made for very clear storytelling and the kids loved the show they loved the story and you could you know you could tell it was a great production and that's kind of a little John Waters too. <laughs> Just like having these weird hair colors and stuff. I kind of I kind of dig it. I well, it I'm worked. interested in seeing it. How cool. I know that there is no easy answer to those things, but I think what's more important than anything is to have the conversation. I, I also worry sometimes that we worry about doing something wrong so then we just don't do anything. That, I think, is the only wrong thing. (laughs) I agree with you. As we've had more and more conversations about diversity, like one of the things I say is, I know I'm not going to always say the right things or say it in the right way, but I'm going to keep trying. Mm -hmm. And I think another opportunity that educational theater has is like, there will be more dialogues after the show or they, you know, the students create like a lobby display that gets across the history or they might bring in a speaker or a psychologist to kind of talk Mm. through the issues. Like you can really 
do a lot more um, when you start doing something in the community and in an educational environment that maybe if people are paying a hundred dollars a ticket and coming in and out, you know, it's not going to be as easy to facilitate. We had an incredible production of the Scottsboro boys at our oh. um, international thespian festival. Susan Stroman actually came out for it. Stop and it. They That's had, so exciting. Um, they had a talk back after the show and they had, they had brought in some mentors to work with the students and, the whole community was involved. It was really a transformative experience for everybody. And that's what I'd like to see more of happening in high schools. That's actually what we're working on funding through the foundation. One of our projects called Pathway is designed to bring funding into high schools so they can take on a more challenging project that focuses on racial issues and encourages dialogue and brings in mentors and we feel like if we can do that in more and more schools, it's going to transform those programs and make them more diverse and get the communities more involved. That's and then hopefully that will have a ripple effect beyond schools as all these students grow up and, and go into theater in different ways. That's amazing. I was listening to Michelle Obama's podcast. And in the first episode, it's her and, and Barack talking about community. And the thing that I felt really hit home to me was that we've become really good about talking about values in schools and at home. But we haven't been great about taking those values into the workplace and institutionalizing them so that they then benefit people outside of home or outside of the educational setting. And I feel like that's become a new focus for me in terms of theater is that the conversation doesn't end when you leave the theater mm -hmm. and the way we apply those principles to our lives doesn't stop when you go to work. You know, I've been in my job now for almost 10 years and we've done a lot of things. We've grown the organization and we've gotten a lot more members and funding and things like that. But what I'm most proud of is we developed our core values. Mm. And I think they're very inspiring and simple and sticky. I'll say them. They're, there's just four of them. People yeah. matter, work together, strive for excellence, and be the person you want to work with. Yes. And I've had teachers, you know, take our poster and use it in their classroom to kind of set expectations for their classroom. And, you know, it's a great way to set expectations. And when things aren't going well, to have something to fall back on to, to point you in the direction of where you need to go and yeah, I, I definitely believe in that. And I think it's really important to articulate what those values are and then, you know, spread them around. Fantastic. Well, the spread continues. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, all right, back into the show. We have a, a couple more to talk about. We have the baseball game. Speaking of team, right? Uh, one of your core values. We have this baseball team. They're all on it. The, the stakes couldn't be higher in terms of winning this game. And Charlie Brown is telling this story by means of his pen pal. He's writing this letter to his pen pal while we're seeing what actually happened play out in front of us. And long story short, he drops the ball. And so they lose the game. Everybody hates him. And he ends he ends his letter asking if maybe he can come live where the pen pal is. Yeah. <laughs> So sad it's, and sweet. It's so sad you and sweet. You just want to go, oh. Yeah, like you, you never hear applause after that number. You hear, oh. But those little league moments, you know, I just think about all those little league games that my brother played and my dad was the coach, and you know, it's just it's those quintessential childhood moments. My nephews are so competitive. 
It's crazy. They are, and they're all in like basketball, you know, little league, baseball, all of those things, which I never got into. Like, well, I you said, did t ball. My brother would, did t. My brother <laughs> did t ball too. I remember the t when they removed the t and they had to actually hit the ball from the from the pitcher. Never got that far, Julie. Never got that far. <laughs> I I did t ball. I also did church ball, church basketball, which we would always kid around that it's the only fight that starts with an opening prayer. Because because it would always be so intense. Everybody would take it so seriously, and I never understood why. And that would only make people more mad because if anybody, like, did something good, I would yell leaping lizards. (laughs) That's when you knew you had to leave sports and go into theater. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Then we also have the Glee Club scene, which is they're singing Oh, Give Me a Home. Yes, Home on the Range. And... Meanwhile, somebody has taken, is it Sally's pencil or Schroeder's pencil or somebody has taken a pencil, maybe Linus's, and the pencil gets passed around and they're having this whole conversation whilst singing Home on the Range. Another just like brilliant little piece of writing where like the internal workings of the number are just so smart and clever. Yes, it's very funny. My second favorite number in this whole show is Little Known Facts, which is Lucy's song. I think this song is, maybe it just reminds me of a couple of my nieces. I have 13. I have 13 nieces and nephews. Wow. And I have a couple of nieces that are 100% Lucy's. And this whole thing where you just make up stuff. (laughs) So Lucy's introducing the world to her baby brother. And this is a fir tree, and it's called a fir tree because it grows fur, fur coats, and <laughs> that keep and you warm in the wintertime. In the wintertime. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's just so true to life, I think. Kids always want to be so much more grown up than they are. And then also what I related to with my own little brothers is, is, is Linus going, wow, Lucy, wow, tell me more. You like, know, you and know then she so just many feeds things. off of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. Now this whole show ends with a song that always makes me cry. After all of the things that we've talked about that are so sweet and funny and clever and sad, then you have this amazing song called Happiness, which reminds us how simple life is. I was thinking about this song today and I get goosebumps just thinking about it, but just like in the coronavirus situation, that's what like people are finding is, okay, I can't travel and I can't do all this stuff and there's some nice things, which is I'm spending more time with my family and I'm connecting with people and I'm cooking and, you know, just those simple, simple parts of life that you, when you're busy and just running around, you kind of lose sight of. It's a beautiful song. It really is. I've definitely had my share of anxiety this year (laughs) as my entire industry has shut down. Yeah. Same for you. And I think that if there is a remedy or medicine for that sort of anxiety, it is this song, which is there's always something beautiful and simple to focus on. And in that simplicity is the profound. It is finding a pencil. It's catching a firefly. It's catching a firefly. It's having a sibling. When all of the other crap falls aside what you're left with is something pure and beautiful and simple. And and I really thank the Peanuts gang for reminding me of that. I'm going to start listening to that song on a regular basis this year. <laughs> That's a great idea. It's a really good reminder. It's a great message. Julie, thank you so much for doing this with me. I've had such a great time. 
As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can send in those recommendations to a musical podcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter, where you can contact us there at a musical podcast. And you know what? Don't forget about visiting our T Public store, where we have lots of designs based on favorite episodes, past and present. Julie, how can we follow everything that's going on with you and the foundation? So our website is educationaltheaterfoundation.org. The foundation is our philanthropy arm. So that's where we take in funding to help underserved schools. Right now we're doing a lot of relief grants for schools who had to cancel their spring musicals and are trying to just get back on their feet. Yeah, Um, I don't think people realize that a lot of funding for school departments comes from selling tickets to their musicals that they haven't been able to do. Actually, two-thirds of schools are completely funded by box office. So the teacher's salary might be funded, you know, from the school, but the actual shows, the productions, they're self-funding. So these, like, teachers are kind of their own producers. They have to think about their season. They have to think about, you know, we'll do Annie or, you know, something that's going to bring in some money, Beauty and the Beast, and then sure. we can do something devised that doesn't have licensing fees. And they really have to... <laughs> Pirates of Penzance. Yeah, they, they really have to think that way. So, um, and a lot of them do their musicals in the spring and had already, you know, put out the money. A lot of them, oh my gosh, some of them had sets built literally on the stage and left it there. And like, oh. you know, had to come back like a month ago and like, see this thing just sitting the way that it was about to open. Um, So yeah, they're, um, they're definitely are in a lot of need and we know that we need to keep these programs in schools now because if they get cut, it's going to be very hard to get them back. Amen. What are the best ways to give? Um, So if you just go on educationaltheaterfoundation.org into the donate, you can give directly to the Thespian Relief Grants. You can give to a program called Jumpstart Theater, which is starting theater programs in middle schools that don't have a theater program. You can give directly to scholarships for students. So you can kind of go with what your passion is. But that's the best way to give. We'll also have our virtual fundraising gala in January. Um, So that will be announced pretty soon and will be really exciting um, with both some celebrities as well as seeing what's really going on in the schools and with teachers right now, which is pretty inspiring. How cool. I love that. And then we're also on social media. The Foundation, Educational Theater Foundation, has uh, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, as well as the Thespian Society, um, which is our student honor society that we talked about earlier. I honestly didn't know about your organization until this year, and I'm so grateful to have run into it, and I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing, and uh, I hope that many more people will be able to hear about the exciting things that you're bringing to our musical theater landscape. Thank you so much for all you're doing. Fantastic. Yeah, we still have a long way to go in building awareness. I had actually not heard of the organization when I heard about this this job um, (laughs) because we didn't have a thespian program in my high school and right that's probably why I did but um so we still have a long way to go and just spreading the word and you know that that means we have a lot more potential to um impact a lot more students and teachers so thanks for giving us some exposure with this podcast hey I'm thrilled and honored and everybody out there have a little bit of happiness
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 